Welcome to Create Collaborate, the show for creative writers aspiring to publish their first book. My name's Jody Sperling, and I'm determined to help you whether you self-publish or storm the gated walls of agents and editors. Today, we'll hear from another aspiring author who's bringing a killer story to the community for a shot at publication. to hear me touch on a few topics uh, that are scientific, perhaps slightly medical. I am not licensed or educated in medicine in any way, so my interpretation may be laughable, but hopefully it's also sort of fun. (laughs) In other news, Jim mentions during the episode that uh, life is too short to read books that you don't connect with. And I didn't rebuff him during the episode because that's not what I'm there for. But at the same time, I think on that all the time. And I want to give my rebuttal here for why I often read books that I don't connect with. And that's because books are the safest place I can go to get a point of view or a way of thinking about the world or a speed of engaging with the world that's 100% different than my own. And so even if I have a real hard time paying attention to the book, I give it the best effort I can. And sometimes it does turn out to be a waste of time, but most of the time it helps to expand my thinking. And so I'm not saying that my process is superior to Jim's, even though obviously if I'm doing it, I believe it is. I'm saying that that's why I read books that I don't connect with pretty frequently. And I want to give a huge shout out to all of the social workers out there. Social workers are amazing. It's a thankless job. But sometimes, sometimes they're just human mistakes. And uh, Jim has a story in here about a social worker that was evaluating him. I couldn't remember what it reminded me of during the interview, but I I did now. And so for that small number of you who have watched uh, and, and when I say small, I'm being a little tongue-in-cheek. But for that small number of you who have watched uh, Avengers, Infinity Wars, there's this scene where Drax, the Destroyer, he is watching two of his other Guardians of the Galaxy shipmates have a kind of an intimate moment. And they ask how long he's been standing there, and you know, all kind of laughter and funniness ensues. And anyways, I'm telling the story really terribly. But Drax is very, very slowly moving a chip toward his mouth. And he says he's mastered the ability of being so still that he's invisible. And of course, that's not true, and everybody has a good laugh. That's kind of like what happened with the social worker that was in charge of Jim. So there you have it. I remembered way after the fact, and I just wanted to at least key you in to that moment. Because I'm happy I remembered If you tune out before listening to any more of the podcast than the next five seconds, this is the piece I would like to leave you with from today's guest. Before anybody is going to care what happens in the story, they have to care who it's happening to. I mentioned at one point in the episode the Robin Williams film where he plays an artificial intelligent android character. I misremembered the title of the movie as AI, which Robin Williams did have a voiceover role in, AI, Artificial Intelligence. However, the movie I was referencing was Bicentennial Man. And as I've reflected on it, I don't think I loved the movie, but the concept still seems really cool. And I was fairly young when I saw it, and it impressed me that it covered so much history. Very late in the podcast, we had a discussion about the major publishers, and so I wanted to go back and research what was left, because there used to be quite a bit of competition, and now it is down to the big five. Penguin Random House, Hatchet Livre, HarperCollins, Simon & Schuster, and Macmillan Publishers. You know what is funny, though, is that I always talk about my dream of publishing with FSG, and that's not even one of the big five. I think it sits inside of Simon & Schuster, but if you're smarter than me, go ahead and just, uh, you know, let me know where it actually is. FSG, we love you. If you want to publish my novel, I'll send it to you today. 
there's all these symptoms. You say, well, what isn't a symptom of COVID at this point? It's yeah. it's funny because there's these things that um, you know you, you know you're used to hearing about them as flu symptoms, nausea, headaches, mm-hmm. you know, vomiting, things like that. But uh, you see that you know there's people that they're getting ulcers on their toes, and that's a symptom of of, of COVID. And you say, well. I it's it's I don't think we I don't think I've ever heard of anything quite like this. So on that note, this one I, I've I've not talked to anybody about this. Have you read? Um, I think it's Saramago. Jose Saramago wrote the book called Blindness. I I feel like I heard somebody talking about it, but I've never read it myself. It was made as a into a movie, and I think it had. I I'm gonna mix up his name with with the guy who plays Loki. It's not Tom Hiddleston, but it's real close to that. Um, somebody right now, if they're listening, is like you moron. It's blank but i can't remember at any rate um so the idea behind the book when i when i read it i thought this is preposterous but it was this pandemic basically that swept through the world population and as a result of the sickness everybody went blind the whole world went blind uh and at the time i I remember i was just like this is ridiculous i mean okay it's fiction but i had a hard time um suspending my disbelief And it's not a book that is super memorable for a lot of reasons. Um, it's kind of the, the worst of people. Um, and there's a few characters you kind of like. The whole reason, though, is that the loss of smell and taste is because this particular virus binds to those receptors and paralyzes them. So if those sense perceptors can be paralyzed by a virus, your sight certainly could. And then you're like, oh, my gosh, that's not just you know suspending your disbelief. That's reality. That could really happen. And that's terrifying. Can you imagine waking up one morning or just you're sitting in your chair doing whatever, reading a book, watching TV, and you just suddenly go blind? You know, it's, it's, it's really hard to imagine that. And, it, and it's funny because I remember somebody saying that in high school, we were talking about a lot of people think that blindness is, uh, you know, if you close your eyes, right, right. that's being blind. And you say, well, no, that's, you're looking at the back of your eyelids when your eyes are closed. Mm-hmm. Being blind is like it's like trying to look into the next room what yeah. do you see in the room beyond there nothing you can't there, mm-hmm. there's no receptors there's no that and that's kind of an, a weird and interesting concept and it, mm-hmm. it's a little bit too it'd be a little bit like i don't know like, uh, for me i'm i'm paralyzed uh mm-hmm. roughly below the knees so when somebody talks about getting kicked in the shin or something like that i understand that hurts you know i understand that, that that for someone like you or, or somebody who's not paralyzed there, that's, that's a particularly painful thing. But I've tried to write about that before. Mm. I've tried to write about a person who, you know, sprains an ankle or steps on a thumbtack or something. And mm. I, I can probably, if I were to guess what that feels like, I'd, I'd probably not be terribly wrong because obviously yeah. I do have pain receptors elsewhere in my body, but uh, it's hard to explain and it's hard to imagine. And, mm. uh, so it's funny when you talk about imagine being blind. I, I, I think the unknown of that is particularly terrifying. Yeah, there are people who they're they're born a certain way. They're born blind, and that's just reality to them. But you know, to lose something like that, something that you know you spent your entire life up to this point, in adulthood, having, and then just to suddenly not have that, it's a particular particular horror. Yeah, absolutely. You so when we when we were in school together. I would probably say about myself that I was just really cautious to ever ask too many questions about your paralysis, because I think it's, it's easier to be insensitive than it is to, to just acknowledge and, and treat you as I would treat anybody else. I, in, in years since then, I've started to slightly grasp, there's a sense of discrimination in not acknowledging something as well. And so I've heard this from, from friends that I have of different races, especially that if you say you're colorblind or anything like that, that's really actually a horrible form of discrimination and you're doing it in the name of trying to be kind. So I want to ask you, um, because I never have, I've never really acknowledged that that's part of your life. How has being paralyzed formed your identity? You know, like anybody else, there's a million things I'd wanted to be when I was a kid. Uh, first thing I ever wanted to be, uh, I had to be a football player. I was obsessed yeah. with football. In case you can't tell from the Joe Montana jersey, and yeah. the, and the... <laughs> yeah. uh, grew up a 49er fan from the time I was a little kid. Obviously, being in a wheelchair, that that path is is, is limited for somebody mm. uh, like me. 
it doesn't matter how much you study the game. It doesn't matter how much you practice throwing the football. I was never going to get to be Joe Montana. I was never going to play quarterback for the 49ers. Yeah. Um, and that's a tough lesson to learn as a kid. And when I was a kid, I said, well, okay, you know what? I'm going to try to be a coach. And, you know, I, for a long time as a little kid, that's what I imagined I would be doing when I, when I, when I grew up. And, you know, that, that evolved. And honestly, right into high school, I kind of planned to pursue trying to be a football coach at some point. But oddly enough, I've always been a reader. I've always mm -hmm. been, I've always really enjoyed stories. I haven't always been the best reader. You know, I had a problem mm -hmm. with it a lot in academia because uh, having to read books that were assigned to me gave me a complicated relationship with literature because, you know, when you're in school, you've got to read, uh, you know, whether it's Shakespeare, Dickens, you've got to read the classics in the English language. And, and sure. that's understandable to a point, but you don't have the option to say, this isn't for me, put it down and move on with your life. Right. Uh, so it took me a long time to realize that I actually enjoyed literature, that I actually enjoyed hmm. reading because once I graduated high school, it became more of a, hey, you know what? Now, if I go to the library and I check out a book, I can read 30 pages. And if I'm bored and say, this, this book is dead to me. Mm, yeah. <laughs> I've never been one of those people who can't put a book down. I feel like there are so many brilliant books in the world. No matter how long I live, I can never read them all. Yeah. Life is simply too short to spend on a book that you're not connecting with. So. Yeah. Apart from you know, things that were assigned to me, whether it was high school or college, uh, if it was assigned, you have to choke it down. You know, you have to interact with it because there's a lesson to be learned that you know the instructor needs you to know or to articulate, and that's fine. That's cool. But I think the thing is, as I got older and I became more and more attached to storytelling as an art, what appealed to me so much about pursuing writing is that it wasn't like football. It wasn't a door that could be closed to me. Yeah. And, I, and that's a weird thing to say about writing because writing is uh, it's a world, as I'm sure you know as well as I do, there is constant rejection, constant, mm -hmm. constant rejection in writing. Right. And even when there's an acceptance in writing, it comes with a yes, but, mm -hmm. you know, you're trying to get, you're trying to get your novel published. So you look for an agent. So you finally find an agent who, who likes your book and wants to represent it. Great. I've made it now. Well, but the agent has to try to sell it to a publisher. Right. <laughs> and then there's a, there's a process to everything. Yeah. But that's everybody. That's a level playing field. Nobody gets around that. You know, that isn't yeah. something that, that, that being in a wheelchair is, you know, exacerbates or, or changes in any way. Everybody has to deal with that struggle. What I hear you saying a lot is that the, the, the paralysis has defined your identity in that it's closed certain doors for you. And it has, I think giving you a keener sense of the doors that are still open to you. And so I, I'm hearing you say it's created a persistence in you that maybe some other people don't have because they don't have a rule set for their life. Like your rule set is I can't get up and walk to the refrigerator. Um, I can't get out on the field and throw a pass. So I have to do certain other things. Rules and limitations have possibly formed your life and given you an advantage over other people in writing. But, you know, that to me is, is one of the great things about writing. The only rule toward being a writer, obviously, you know, there's, there's all sorts of different things people like to say. You're not, a, you're not a writer until you've published something. You're not a writer until you've been paid. You're not a writer until. And the thing is, is that everybody I know, the writers that I've known and admired in my life, they will all say, the only thing there is to being a writer is writing. Mm -hmm. If you sit down and you put in the work and you, you produce the material you're a writer mm. so for me here was this thing that i could be that nobody could say no mm. to me i yeah. mean obviously i've heard no a time or two as a writer from from publishers from agents and everything like that that's that's fine you know an agent can tell me they're not interested in my novel many have um but they're not going to come here and take my laptop away and say you don't get to be part of our club yeah so um in fact quite the opposite you know most most people when they reject your work try to include a, a little bit of uh, encouragement you know they encourage you to keep writing to keep trying they acknowledge that it's a subjective field mm -hmm. uh you know I, I think that the best people in publishing are still people who when they have to give a rejection 
uh, they temper it. They temper it by saying, look, this 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 is a no from me, but please keep at it. You know, I think a lot of people are, are terrified to discourage people from writing. Yeah. So um like I said, to me, I think that was the that was that was the appeal to me. It was this thing I could do that honestly the wheelchair never had any bearing on yeah. it. I mean, uh, your life experience, I don't care whether you're in a wheelchair, I don't care whether you're uh you know anything about your your personal identity is going to always influence your work. So obviously the wheelchair is uh, going to influence my perspective. Mm-hmm. It's going to shape some of the things that I do, whether I realize it or not. But, uh, you know, you get a seat at the table. I recall that one of our uh, professors from UNO was working on writing a, a mystery novel with a protagonist main character that was paralyzed or in a wheelchair. And as I recall, she wanted to, to interview you to kind of get an idea of your inside baseball, I guess, on what that was like. Mm. Is that, did, did that ever happen? Did you ever sit down with her um, and, and talk that through or? Oh yeah. Lisa yeah. Samlin, uh, wonderful writer. Mm-hmm. One of my, one of my very favorite people in writing. Yeah. She, she actually took me uh, aside and she, she, she didn't know me real well yet. And I think like you and like a lot of other people, you're afraid to overstep, I think. Uh, she asked me if I'd be interested in answering some questions about personal experience and things mm-hmm. like that. Her big interest was a lot about my childhood, uh, specifically being a uh, disabled person in public education. Oh, okay. Because one of the things she seemed most fascinated by was some of the some of the things that I would do, like every couple of years. You know, even though uh, my, my disability isn't uh, intellectual or developmental, uh, I'm still labeled a special needs student, obviously being physical special needs. But the state, at least the state of Connecticut at the time, and, you know, I'm a little older now, things may have changed. They had more of a holistic approach. So they didn't just focus on sending like an occupational therapist uh, to come evaluate me. Uh, they would send... Uh, you know, make sure that I could, you know, get in and out of the bathroom or whatever at school. But uh, they would have a psychologist come every couple of years and give me uh, examinations and, and, and run tests and things like that that ran the gamut. And uh, they would also observe me. And so I had some stories there. One of them being, I was, I think, probably like fourth or fifth grade. And uh, I could always tell whenever the person from the state coming to evaluate evaluate me was coming and he was surprised by this that i knew that he would be coming and i said well how did you know how did you know that uh we were going to be doing the evaluations and we try to vary the time of year that we see you and i said because you've been observing me and he said well how do you know i've been observing you because you're not a fourth grader because you're coming here there's this guy hanging around with a little laminate from his uh, his shirt pockets, the state of Connecticut. I mean, one of these things is not like <laughs> did he, the other. Did he think so. he was like a, a private detective? Did he think he was hiding or something? It, it seemed that way. Oh, wow. Okay. If I'm being honest, because he, he seemed, you know, he would never talk to me until he was actually pulling me out of class to do his evaluations. Yeah. I think that he kind of thought that I was, that he was flying into the radar and he said, you know, well, okay, I, I come into this classroom every day. I see these kids every day. And you know, like I said, there's this grown man in a, in a shirt and tie sitting in the background mm. with a state of Connecticut ID badge. Yeah. You tell him, well, yeah, I kind of figured that you're here for me. You're here to do this thing that you do every couple of years anyway. So That's... You know, I had stories like that and um, just some of the kind of weird things they would do to evaluate me. Like, they were very interested in my emotional state and my problem solving abilities. Like you know, when I was younger, I actually used to have leg braces okay. that uh, I would wear and I would walk with crutches mm-hmm. and um, on the crutches, you know, things were harder to get around, but it was good exercise and at the time I could still do it. But uh, one thing they would do is that uh, this guy would test me by, you know, those little carts that they used to wheel in with a TV on it whenever they'd show a movie mm-hmm. or something in class. They'd have the, the TV cart. Yeah. We'd park that right in front of the right in front of the entry to the class where I and they'd see if I would ask for help in moving it. Well, I didn't need help in moving it. So when it was there, I would just move it. And they wanted that to mean something. They really, really wanted to because they would they would focus on that. Mm-hmm. They would say, 
why didn't you ask for help in moving that TV card out of the way? Because I can do it myself. If I needed help, I would have asked for it. <laughs> but so I, I think that's probably another thing, honestly, that's part of the, the experience of, of growing up a handicapped kid and everything is there's certain things that I think people latch onto when they expect there to be some kind of meaning to mm. it. And, you know, you feel like you're disappointing people when you just say, I, there's no real grand answer attached to it. You know, there was something in my way and I moved it because I could, <laughs> but that's a story I shared with Lisa Samlin. And, uh, there were a couple other things like mm. that, that she was interested in. I don't know if she ever wrote the story or if she's still planning to write the story. I kind of hope so. Cause we had fun chatting. I mean, the way the projects come to, to the finished state is so strange. I've, I've written, I've written novels in a matter of months and I've spent five years on other, actually, I think I spent six years on, on the novel that I was writing during graduate school. So like, yeah, it takes a long time to get some projects off the ground and no time at all for other things. So with that, we should move on to the story part of, of this podcast. So um, yeah, go ahead. I mean, what, what story uh, are you, are you here to share? Why don't I lean on the one that uh, I'm currently querying the most? Uh, I have a novel. Uh, it's called The Descriers, and basically, it's 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 sort of a low fantasy work. Uh, it is about uh, two uh, magical beings, for lack of a better way to put it, who uh, represent hope and fate, and they are linked. And these magical beings that are called Descriers in this world. Uh, inhabit human bodies and they walk among mortal people. It's kind of about their interplay and it's about the relationship of hope and fate. Uh, these are both very powerful beings, but with very different ways to affect the world while they're a part of it. Uh, and it's a lot about the conflict between them. You know, fate, fate can be callous. Fate can seem arbitrary. Uh, and fate doesn't always care about hope. <laughs> so um, the story just really kind of talks about uh, these two these two creatures and how they live and how they interact with the world. It's, it actually spans centuries at a time. As the story goes, I mean, not to spoil my own story, not that it's published or anything yet, so it's not available, but it's also about the way that uh, while these people do have uh, abnormally long lives they are finite so at some point the story picks up with a new person claiming the role of hope in the world and the basically this this person representing hope is trying to decide how they can change fate what they can do and you know, that's basically the way the story uh, moves. I love the concept. The concept is really fun. You're playing with a couple of archetypes. So you have two really huge, I think, pillar kind of creations that you're leaning on to, to build the story. Real quickly, before you continue on, I'm not really educated in the difference between low fantasy and high fantasy, other than I can tell you that Tolkien would be an example of high fantasy. Can you give me kind of a, a brief description of, of both kinds of fantasy. Yeah. I mean, fantasy, like you said, Tolkien is kind of an, an archetypal high fantasy. If you want something more modern, uh, George R. R. Martin's uh, song of fire and ice, um, the game of Thrones series uh, for people who are TV fans would be an example of high fantasy, high fantasy. I mean, you're, you're seeing things like uh, wizards, uh, dragons, uh, races like orcs and dwarves and things like that are common to high fantasy. Gotcha. Uh, it's also usually like a okay. faux medieval setting uh, with high fantasy. Uh, low fantasy, you're you're going to see things more like you're familiar with the work of um, Neil Gaiman. You know, you're dealing yep. with magical beings, but in more of an everyday setting. So, so that would be like American gods, where you have um, Zeus and the other the other ancient Greek gods uh, or Roman gods, but in a, a yes. modern setting. Yes, uh, exactly. So. Also sometimes called urban fantasy. How would like Percy Jackson fit into there then? Is Percy Jackson going to be um, considered low fantasy uh, as well? I believe so. I believe so. I think, uh, okay. you know, there's, I'm not sure necessarily if there's an age 
differentiation there? Because I know Percy Jackson is, is generally aimed at a younger audience, like a middle grade or YA or middle grade, maybe. Uh, so I don't know if maybe there's a different uh, different kind of pocket that they fit into there. But uh, okay, yeah, it's thank you. Thanks for that. I, I had to educate myself honestly because I, and maybe this is kind of a mistake that a, a young novelist makes. I don't know, but I had nothing in mind for a genre when I wrote the describers. Uh, none at all. I didn't have a thing. But I'm going to sit down and I'm going to write um, low fantasy or. Uh, magic realism or, or anything like that. I, I don't really consider that. I write it and then I kind of try to figure out what is this? <laughs> because, you know, as much as we like to, to think when we create something that we're doing something groundbreaking, I think that the more you study writing and the more you read, uh, the better you get at getting over yourself. <laughs> you realize, um, you know, nothing out there is entirely uh, unique and, you know, you don't necessarily want it to be. You want it to be something that people have a mm. a fertile ground to interact with it with. You know, yeah. if somebody were to ask you, oh, you know, you're trying to sell your novel, and and you say, well, I have a novel, and says, well, what's it like? And you tell them, well, it's really not like anything that you've read before. People are like, oh, okay, and then mentally they check out. You know, you need to yeah. have a way for people to Comps. exactly. Also a way for people to understand exactly what they're getting into, especially with genre work, you know, like we're talking about low fantasy versus yeah. high fantasy. You can't tell them. One of the things too, is that you have to have expectations when you're operating inside of a genre. So if you're in, and, and I'm not going to try to define fantasy because I don't understand it, but if you're in a detective novel, the expectation is, is that you're going to have yeah. the reveal. And if you decide to write a detective novel, like Stephen King did one time and don't give a reveal, people kind of get frustrated. They're like, even if you're Stephen King, you have to follow what the the format of the genre does, at least to a degree. And if you're, if you don't, you really have to subvert it in an amazing way. So absolutely. And that's part of study, really. When you study the craft of writing, you understand yeah. that there are some, there are some rules in play and it's not that you have to always follow the rules, but you better not break them without being mindful about it. You know, you better know, the chance yeah. you're you're taking when you break a rule, who you who you run the risk yeah. of upsetting, and why, um, and you might need to defend your choices. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, if you tell somebody this is a high fantasy novel, then you know you don't give them you know sword and sorcery. Uh, they're they're right. going to be upset because they were promised high fantasy. So that's that's something that they're used to get yeah. used to getting. You know, in low fantasy, another kind of hallmark of low fantasy is that, you know, it's a lot like hard and soft sci-fi. Uh, hard sci-fi is something that, you know, they generally try to have a scientific basis behind things uh, that are in play. You know, if there's a, a, a space travel uh, element to it, then they want at least some theoretical science uh, at play. Soft sci-fi is Star Wars. It's science magic. Yeah, you know, low fantasy. I think that there's a similar focus that on magic. You know, and a lot of high fantasy, they want they want to really understand what the rules governing the magic are. Uh, low low sci-fi. I think there's a little bit more tolerance for some obfuscation there. <laughs> I'm gonna probably enjoy always writing than in the low version of anything. Um, I I don't like the part of actually having to research the science. I don't mind research. I love research, but the idea of having to research the science behind why something happens probably not going to appeal to me. Uh, I'm in the same boat. <laughs> that's just an aside, really. Uh, I'm in the yeah. same boat. To me, I, I I love science. I wish I were good at it, but I'm not. So I, I don't have the yeah. talent for that. And, you know, yeah. frankly, with me, this might be my more literary side showing, but uh, when I write, I'm all about characters, all about characters. It's really one of the first lessons I took from studying writing. And that's mm -hmm. always start with a character because before anybody is going to care what happens in the story, they have to care who it's happening to. So uh, yeah. with that in mind, I feel like trying to get way off on theoretical science behind traveling faster than light or get into a system mm. of magic or something like that. That's that can all be cool. And I might, might enjoy reading it, but when it comes to writing it, I'm, I'm more interested in, in who the people in the story are and what's motivating them and what's at stake. So 
for my part, I'm I'm in that same boat. Yeah, I'll always take low fantasy, low sci-fi, that type of thing. I think that I'm hearing you right. It's the Des Crier. So I, I don't know if I would know how to spell it, but D-E-S-C-R-I-E-R-S. Yeah. Okay. At the risk of sounding really stupid, I'm not recognizing the word. Is it a, an actual, are you pulling it from an actual word that I'm just not in my my uh, uh, catalog? Or describe. Tell me more. Uh, describe to perceive something from a great distance. There you go. Um, part of these, these people in this, in this world uh, these people who represent hope and faith. Uh, in this world, it's important to understand that, that the future is not set in stone. Everything can be changed. But there are a limited number of ways a thing can go. These people can see possibilities for the future. They can look into somebody's immediate future, and the immediate future is a little bit more set than the distant future because there are fewer variables between those points in the timeline. So uh, this ability to perceive and also to get a sense of somebody's mind, I simply refer to it as describing in the in the novel. So that's where the again a describer is a word that I made up, yeah. but at least comes from a real thing. <laughs> I enjoy it a lot, and I I think that the the play that you're doing there is fun and engaging. And I think that people will have kind of a similar perception to it as I do of sort of like, I feel like that's probably a real word. And that, that sense of like reaching for it, if they don't pull the root out, which a lot of people probably will, but um, if they don't pull it out, it's going to give it a, a sense of unfamiliarity. And that's always a really pleasing feeling for, for a reader is being like, I'm not exactly sure, but then having the outline put in front of you. And when I say outline, I mean the actual, the, the book, reading the book and the story and how it goes, and then kind of discovering what they do. Uh, and a limited number of people will take it one step further and actually go look and say like, hmm, just cry. Oh, okay. That's what that means. Wow. That it adds a layer. It adds some depth to it. So that's really cool. I was wondering, as you were describing the setup for the book, a couple of things that are really challenging is the length of time that you're dealing with to, to tell a, a novel over centuries is incredibly difficult. Why did you decide to take on that big of a challenge? And what do you see as the advantages to doing something like that? Honestly, it was um, for this, it was to set up what happens when the new representation of hope comes into the story, because she essentially has a chance to meet her predecessor. And so really, it's kind of a play against time, really. She's brand new to this interplay, to this connection that she has to fate and the intentionality behind going and showing some of these flashbacks. And most of the deep historical scenes are, are done in flashback, uh, where you meet the character Sparrow, and uh, he's the initial representation of hope. And uh, you understand that these flashbacks are meant to cover different eras in history where he's interacted with Theo, who is the representation of fate. Uh, in the story and uh, to kind of show their past. And so when Timber, who is the person who replaces Sparrow in the story, when she comes along, you kind of see exactly the hopelessness that she feels when she realizes that trying okay. to interact with this being who has been around so much longer than she has to this point and who uh, her predecessor had tried for centuries to uh, alter in some way, to soften as she sees it. Um, it's kind of meant to just give you a little bit of a, a larger sense of the magnitude of the task that she's that she feels she's up against. Just how just how old of a wound she's dealing with. How close do you stay to the the characters? Is it going to be like a really close third? Are you writing in first person? It's, it's first person actually. It's first person narrated okay. first by Sparrow, who is the manifestation of hope. Uh, and then ultimately, mm -hmm. when uh, Timber, his replacement, comes in, she takes over the story. And then really, that that's it. I, I never really wanted uh, to give gotcha. the reader a uh, first-person point of view of Theo, the representation of, of fate, just simply because okay. uh, you know, fate, is, fate is more mysterious and also fate... Um, mm. Fate is holding all the cards. So there's, <laughs> there, I just didn't feel like there was the same yeah. amount of tension to pull from that side of the equation. So, and, and this is, this is actually my perception of life. This is kind of talking more about how I perceive hope and fate. I actually find hope to be a little bit more mysterious. And that's because my default is that fate is 
driving whatever's happening. I don't understand it. And I'm not attributing it to any kind of deity, but to me, fate just feels like the, the actual operating system of my life. I really can't, I have the illusion of doing something, but it's all driving that way. And so hope is always mysterious to me because it's something, and you're setting this up really nicely, but it's something that at least gives you the ability to question, like, could I better myself? I guess, do I actually have a choice? Can I better myself? So it's, it, yeah, we're coming at it from, from totally opposite sides. It's sort of refreshing to hear your, your sense of how hope is, is, the thing that you can connect to and fate is mysterious. Yeah. Well, I, I also think it's an interesting question it, through some of the mortal characters uh, that these beings encounter in the story. I, I kind of try to represent that a little bit. I think part of the, uh, the interesting uh, element of that equation is also in whether or not you find comfort in that idea. You know, some people find comfort, I think, in the idea that fate is set and there's nothing really that is ever going to change it or influence it in any way. Uh, like you said, uh, some people, uh, like you said, you feel like you can have the illusion of influencing fate. Uh, and I think that some people actually find comfort in that. Some people yeah. some people find utter despair in that, mind you. Um but I really just yeah. think it, it speaks to what what your worldview is, where you see yourself in the uh, hierarchy of, of the universe. Some people say I'm not in charge and I'm glad I don't want to be in charge. <laughs> you know, some people mm. uh, yeah. feel like I'm not in charge and that powerlessness makes them feel like nothing they do matters. It's really about mm. whether or not you think there's, I think it depends on whether or not you think that what you do has meaning and whether or not uh, what you're willing to, to, to accept for meaning. Is there for you, is there any sense of religion? I'm not talking about spiritual. I'm actually talking about religious because you're using archetypes and religion would actually be another archetype. Uh, yeah, I think the short answer is, uh, is yes, because really, if I were to summarize the describers in a single thought, it would be that the describers means to explore what it would take to change the mind of a God, because someone like Theo who has the ability that he does. And uh, which by the way, in the, in the novel, it, it's quite clear that fate is simply and objectively more powerful than hope. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So ultimately that's what the characters of Sparrow and then Timber are up against changing the mind of a God. Now, obviously they, not trying to offend anybody uh, in terms of, of, of spiritual beliefs. So that, I mean, that's small G God, a God religion is such a loaded subject for so many people. I don't uh, necessarily identify myself as particularly religious one way or another, but religion fascinates me. And uh, no. you know, again, I, I know it's a cop out. Other people say it too. I'm not particularly religious, but I'm spiritual. Um, I try to avoid that just because it, it, it's a bit of a cop-out that people, I think, like to fall on. But there's there's definitely that sense in this book. I think so. I'm okay. If it's if it's a cop-out to say that I'm I'm not religious, but I am spiritual, I'm okay with that particular one because I grew up in a, a Christian household. And anybody who's listened to any of this podcast probably has heard some of those stories. But uh, I feel like religion has done a lot of damage to a lot of people for the best intentions. And it's so weird to have great intentions and destroy people. I have said things to people that I love in the name of, of religion that I would have never said if I just thought about that person objectively, um, objectively, but subjectively through the lens of religion, suddenly I'm like, well, I'm a Christian. And if they're doing this, then I'm pretty sure that means they have to go to hell. And I don't want them to go to hell because I really like them. And so I say something yeah. that hurts them. There's no, there's, it's, it's a lose-lose situation at that point. And so I kind of jettisoned the whole idea of, of that thing. And I try to approach it on the sense that I'm skeptical that we could have happened by chance. And that's really all it comes down to me it, it is, is I'm skeptical we happened by chance. And so I feel like there's something, but I'm cool with people disagreeing. I don't mind if I offend somebody by saying that my, my, my former you know, Christian friends and, and, and family. I don't care if it offends them any more than I care if it offends you or anybody else listening to say like, you know, you, you are skeptical that this happened by chance. So really long tangent, but uh, that, that caught my attention. 
in, in your work is that there's a, there's a good, like the best kind of feel of religion in it. I want to ask you, have you noticed a parallel to, or have you ever even seen, I, I wish I knew the title of the movie, but Robin Williams is, I think he's artificial intelligence. It may even be called AI, but I feel like that's the wrong one. And he exists for hundreds and hundreds of years as a robot. And so there's just this huge span of different characters that come in and out of his life as he lives. Are you familiar with this one at all? I feel like I remember seeing trailers for it, but I don't think I ever saw them. Okay. Well, it certainly didn't influence your work then, but I would maybe encourage you to check it out and see if it, if it resonates. If we're we're always looking for comps, I guess it might possibly resonate. That is a place I want to stay for just another minute is when we talk about these huge spans of time, you stay really close and first person to them. How do you deal with mortal people who come into their life to make sure that they're tethered to the time they're in? This might even be a cheat, honestly, but it's one of the uh, things in the story. Part of the limitation of Sparrow and Timber, not everybody is capable of perceiving them. So they can reveal themselves as they want, or the person has to have, to have like a special gift. Timber and Sparrow before her are limited. They don't control the ability to perceive them. The character Theo, who represents fate, he can basically force himself on anybody he wants. He can force somebody to see him. He can manipulate what somebody perceives and how they perceive it. People, uh, because of uh, their innate qualities, either possess that ability or don't. And so ultimately, the way I control that as a novel is extremely powerful beings are to be caught off guard <laughs> in certain situations because they can be out, whether they are in a, in a dock or something in a crowd or whether they're walking down a crowded city street or sitting alone somewhere in the forest, they are sometimes not expecting to be seen. And they are. So it's kind of a thing that I try to do is... Um, you, know, you show exactly what these people are and just how powerful and mysterious they can be. And then you put them, you, know, you arrange the dynamics so that they can basically be taken off guard. You know, they can't necessarily control everything. So I think that it's, it's a dynamic that you turn to, that I turn to in creating the story where uh, you find something that they can't control. And so you allow yes, there are things that they do. Yes, there are things that they shape, but there are still things that can happen to them instead of things that they necessarily create happening. So as far as connecting to the people in a scene, it's it's actually not. It works the other way. It's people connecting to them. Gotcha. Now, is, is fate actually trying to kill hope? Is that part of the tension? Or what would you say is the main tension between the two forces? The main tension, honestly, is fate and hope that they aren't necessarily fighting. They aren't at odds directly with each other. They are uh, more at odds with what they see their role as being. Fate has his view of his role in people's lives and what is what is right to do to people. Hope has uh, his and her respectively view of what beings such as themselves ought to be doing and how they ought to be using their influence over people's lives. That's what, um, interesting that you mentioned that. So I, for whatever reason, I assumed Sparrow and Timber were both feminine, female, and Timber is not. Timber's no, male. No, Sparrow is male. Uh, Timber is female. Oh, <laughs> wow. Look at that, man. I had it so backwards. I'm really sorry. That was just... I, th- I think I filled in the blanks where I never heard when you were, you know, talked about the the gender there. So I want to stop for a second because I I hope that I'm not the only moron in the world. Um, But I just naturally felt like hope was a more feminine presence and fate was a more masculine presence. Can you talk to me about the purpose behind what you did, having one masculine, one feminine for hope? Um, And if you ever perceived like just a latent gender behind those two concepts? You know, honestly, my initial reason for doing uh, that was I originally envisioned envisioned Sparrow as male just Honestly, I, I just, the character came to me and uh, I think I originally wanted to picture a certain face in creating this character that just happened to be male. When I decided to, you know, there would be somebody else, my initial reason for, for reforming the role with as feminine in the uh, resurrection element of that character, it was because I, I did want to create the idea that only men could be describers. <laughs> so really it was just a, I didn't want to make that power distinctly masculine. 
I think that the reason why I, I think it works is because there's something I think about not just, I don't want to give away the ending of the novel. but Please don't. Yeah, please don't. About what, what Timber is able to achieve. So it isn't necessarily hope, but I think it is what Timber brings to the role of hope in the story that I found to have a slightly feminine touch. And not just that, but specifically in the manner uh, in which, uh, and I don't mean to, it's nothing sexual or anything like that, um, but the way she interacts with uh, a masculine Theo uh, representing fate. It had a a more um, feminine touch to it. I think that if Mm -hmm. I'm being honest, part of that has to do with the way that I, the women that I know have always dealt with certain problems so yeah i I think that probably it's an influence of you know knowing my mother and my sister (laughs) well i definitely drew on them for the character in many ways and and to be fair fate was preceded by a female version of fate as well so um, gotcha it was really just kind of a flip of the roles but you know there's i do have to say looking at the text there's probably something in there to say there's a reveal about you know, the masculine and the feminine, perhaps. I mean, I know we're, in, you know, over oversimplifying things, I think, by subscribing to a gender binary, maybe. But I, I think so, because you're going to see that, that when you, if you read the book, you'll see that Theo's, predece- Theo's predecessor was a very different uh, interpretation of fate as well. And, you know, I think that is kind of a thing, too, where uh, Timber and, and the predecessor of Theo you know, they don't get to exist at the same time. But uh, there yeah. is definitely, I think, a commonality between the way they interpret their role is what they do. Even though one represents fate and one represents hope, I think that there's definitely a common thread between those two characters. I think this sounds like a, a killer book. The thing is, is that, you know, there's a temptation to want to pursue traditional publishing and, uh, you know, land an agent. Hopefully that agent, oh, maybe they can, you know, win over Penguin Random House or Simon Schuster or whatever your your dream uh, big time publisher is. But you know, the truth about publishing and, and the big the big uh big five. Are they they're down the big four now, aren't they? <laughs> are they really? I thought it was still the big five. Did did, did they have another another I merger? I thought so. I wasn't the, I thought there was oh, yeah, look into it. Too. When we were when we were in undergrad, it was the yeah. big six, and then you had uh, um, Random House and yeah. Penguin merged, and so then they became the big five. I, I but I, maybe another one's merged. I since feel then. like Simon and Schuster merged with somebody, but I'm not positive of that. But I, okay. I could be all wrong. Sure. But yeah. It, yeah, the truth is, is that a lot of people, you know, okay, so you get that big deal and you get that 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 big name behind your work, and. You know, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to to sell a lot of copies of your book. You might collect dust on the on the, the bargain table at Barnes and Noble for all you know. The problem is, is that you've got, yeah, I mean, they're not going to promote you as a first time author. Um, not very much anyways. They'll have a limited marketing budget and they will use that a little bit. But essentially, as it stands right now, they're no matter who they are in publishing, they're trusting um, probably three or four titles a year, literally three or four titles a year to make them all the money to cover operations. And then everything else is, hey, let's throw it out there and see what the the cat licks up, you know? And so we have this responsibility that we don't think about because we're just constantly, we're writing. That's our thing. Like we're writers. We're not anything else. We're not, we're not um, marketers. We're not salespeople. We're writers. And so we don't think about building a community to give us a strong launch on our book. But if you don't at this point, your chances of ever sustaining yourself with the income from, from your books is next to nothing. Um, and you, you see it more in self-publishing because you get to keep a, a bigger yeah. piece of the pie. But even then, you just think you put something on Amazon KDP and suddenly people are like, oh, cool, I'll go check that book out. No, it does nothing uh, unless you are a really skilled marketer and you know what yeah, you're doing. I mean, well, I know too. Uh, I can't think of the guy's first name. The Andy Weir, uh, the guy who wrote. Yeah, he, yes. Yeah, I, mm-hmm. I, I believe I heard uh, the marketing was the self-published yeah. originally. And, yep. you know, took off, and, and yep. that's great, terrific. Mm-hmm. That guy, you know, I he he's he's got a pretty wide skill set too. <laughs> you notice he's not mm-hmm. I mean, he, talented exactly. writer, sure, but. Also, as you noted, to do that, you need a, a sense of marketing. You need a sense of, you know, one of the biggest things I've found is, oh, social media. You've got to be on social media, right? Be a writer. Mm-hmm. I, I find yeah. social media to be kind of a black hole. Uh, 
and I'm sure a lot of that is I don't really know what I'm doing. You know, people people who excel in using social media, they use uh, algorithms. They understand how the algorithms work to get the eyes on on what they post. You know, I, well, I mean, you follow. I, I don't really use much Facebook anymore. I used to. My face, my entire Facebook mm-hmm. activity is just you know snarky observations about random things I've encountered or something. Uh, you know, I yep. mean, I, I'm trying to give some friends a laugh, but, you know, I don't have any illusions that I'm going to build a following for my writing based on, you know, a, a tweet yeah. or so a day that's designed to give somebody a chuckle. Um, yeah, And that's just because, like you said, I'm, I'm writing. That's what I spend my time doing. I, I don't understand. Mm-hmm. I don't understand the nuts and bolts of how Twitter or Instagram or Facebook or any of them work. So it, you can't really get the yeah. most out of it. So. I think that's the thing. As a first-time writer, you know, there's a lot that goes into publishing that you don't know, that you don't understand. And, right. But, you know, I'm hearing more and more people talk about, you know, going with a small press. You feel like, well, you know, my, my book is only going to make so much of a splash if I go through a small press. And the truth is, it's probably only going to mm-hmm. make so much of a small, so much of a splash, no matter who you publish with. So. Yeah. Yep. Um, again, it it really does go back to your your individual effort and in building a platform for people to know who you are and mm-hmm. trust you. Some people do, and some yep. people don't. And it doesn't matter how you publish if you have the platform. And I think your your chances of success are really heightened. Things like this, will one helps. Why things like this that you're doing here, I think, are so great. Thanks for listening today. And remember, you should never feel bad for telling the truth. So get out there and write. And if you've got a killer story, apply to be a guest on our show. Email me at jodyjsperling at gmail.com or find me on Facebook, Jody J. Sperling. And hey, there's no point in telling stories if nobody's listening. <laughs> <laughs>